Metallica is always seek and destroy, bringing in your Wednesday edition, 5 o'clock hour, Eastern Standard, that's PM, of Discussions of Truth. I am your host on a weekly basis, Ian Hamilton Trottier. Follow me on Twitter. Follow me on Instagram. Retweet me. Make a comment. Tag a friend, Ian Trottier, that's I-A-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R, both on Twitter and on Instagram. We are pleased, as always, to broadcast from Winwood Radio in Miami, Florida. Donate to Winwood Radio. Make a donation. WinwoodRadio.com, internet radio station. Donate to Discussions of Truth. You can do that at iantrottier.com, I-E-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R.com. Impeach Mass Media. Type that into your browser, Impeach Mass Media. What do I mean by that? What I mean is fair and balanced Fox News may not be all that it's touted to be MSNBC CNN ever wonder why you can always find a monitor with the CNN news running at any US airport now I haven't been to all US airports I've been to a few and I've always found a CNN news broadcast live at an airport You think your media is not tainted? I'm glad you're in that place. But the fact that you're listening to me shows that you question that stance. And the more that I look into various matters in our free country, the more that I realize that the powers that be which means the powers that collect most of your taxes and collect the rewards off of your hard work that you put in on a daily basis, 9 to 5. Enjoy you sitting on that couch potato watching the boob tube. Because you're not getting, most likely, the accurate information on what's really going on with your constitutional rights. All I do is create a platform for folks that know a lot more about these subjects than I, and most likely you, to come on and speak their mind and speak their experience. And that's why I'm pleased to announce that next week we will be hosting 
author Ilana Freeland. She's the author of her well, the most recent book, Under an Ionized Sky. Quote, upon returning from a few years in England, I moved back to Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I had gotten a master's degree at Saints St. John's College. Knowing of the massive research I had been pursuing for a decade for my Sub Rosa America history series, a friend introduced me to an independent scientist, Clifford Carnicon, who in 2006 was still deeply engaged in collecting and measuring what had been falling from airplanes. Chemicals that had been falling from airplanes and leaving trails that look like condensation trails, but aren't, over northern New Mexico. And as you've most likely heard on this program, Dane Wigington experiences it firsthand in the Shasta Mountains of Northern California. So it's not just confined to New Mexico. And it's not just confined to California. So Clifford Carnicom had been studying this since the 1990s. And Ilana approached him in 2006. When Clifford took her aside and said, Ilana, quote, under Clifford's microscope, she says, I watched the Morgagons, Morgulons, I'm not sure the pronunciation of that word is, the Morgulons pathogen suck iron out of my red blood cells. Does that sound like that's a good thing? It sounds like it's not a good thing to me. And we'll hear more about what she knows about that because it's caused her, 12 years later, to write this book, Under an Eye and Eye Sky. So does a statement alarm you? Is it alarming? Yes, it's an alarming statement. So we'll backtrack a little bit in Alana's life and what she had done since she was in high school. In 1963, Alana was elected by Girl State to be a representative at Girls Nation, American Legion Auxiliary, Washington, D.C. The same year, Bill Clinton, and you recognize that name most likely because he was the former president of the United States, he happened to represent Arkansas as a high school student, for something called Boys State. So back in 63, she and Bill Clinton seemingly crossed paths through an American Legion auxiliary program called Girls, uh, Girls Nation and Boys Nation. Well, in the Rose Garden at the White House, having tea with the then U.S. President John F. Kennedy, Alana was put into the spotlight. So here she's got a young encounter as a high school student with... Uh, obviously, she has no clue that uh, Bill Clinton would go on to become a uh, U.S. president. But here she is as a high school student having an encounter with um, quite possibly one of the most incredible U.S. presidents of the history of this country. Uh, most people think of JFK very fondly. And John F. Kennedy points her out as a high school student. This is Lana Freeland. And he says... You remind me of a young version of my wife, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. So imagine having that encounter with uh, JFK, a high school student. 
pretty cool, right? Pretty, pretty incredible. It seems like uh, he thought highly of her. Three months later, he would get his head blown off. In Dallas, Texas. So we go from that to under an ionized sky and what she has studied in HARP, the Strategic Defense Initiative, and what some folks call chemtrails. We like to refer to those as geoengineering. And I'm going to tout geoengineeringwatch.org for Dane. Because I fully support what he's doing. I I support it. If you are going to look into anything that you find questionable in the going-ons of your local government, your state, federal, whatever it may be, I support you. Look, whether your findings are accurate or not, the fact that you've got a hunch and you're going down the path to prove it either right or wrong, I support that. Same thing why I've had on people to talk about 9-11. I support the fact that they question a narrative. I support that. I support that. I wasn't there in New York. I'm not in the U.S. government. Never been in the military. I'm just your average, everyday American citizen. And I love this country. And I love the fact that we are different from any other country on this planet. And that we can speak our minds. And we can voice our opinion. And I can go down to the corner or I can go down to the town square and I can stand on a soapbox and I can say whatever I want. And that's my right. And I support that. Now, what we, what we look for on this program is to find accuracy and truth. That's what we strive to do on discussions of truth here at Winwood Radio. So Lana will join us next week. Cody Snardgrass will be joining us in October. And I've got a couple other guests that have confirmed, but Cody's a former black ops specialist. And he's got a very interesting story. Okay, If the guests that come on this program give us inaccuracies, that's their issue. That's their problem. It's our job to snuff it out. And it snuffed out any inaccuracy that might be happening in mass media. Okay. The, the, the hashtag fake news isn't viral for no reason. There is misinformation and disinformation running rampant. September 19th, former JAG lawyer and retired CIA operations officer Sam Faddis is scheduled to join the program. Beyond repair, the decline and fall of the CIA is the title of his most recent book. And speaking of books, I want to tout my own, which I have named currently, it continues with this name, Freedom Reserved. No more lies. What do I mean by that? What I mean is it's your job. You're the reserved. We. We are the reserved group 
of Americans or wherever you may be in the world to take authority and those that should be questioned because they're working for us, if you're in the United States. Now, if you're in the UK, you're working for the Queen, arguably, but you didn't elect her. We march to a different drum in the United States, don't we? And we elect. That means we submit votes. Majority rule. That's who we work for. People that we put in office. And if that's not happening, then there's an infringement. And our inalienable rights, well, I use that term loosely, but constitutional rights nonetheless, take them to task because they are working for you. It's we, the people. No more lies. The title of my current book. And a pretty good deal. Eight ninety nine, I think it is, on Lulu. That's a, that's a nice, decent price for a quick read that'll probably take you half a day. You can sit down before you go to bed and you can read through it. If you're a quick read, you can do that. A lot of good information in there that basically gives you a glimpse at the path that I've walked the past two years since the Zika virus came ashore in Miami, Florida. And a small group of folks were up in hands and irate because that chemical that was used, known as Dibrom, nail it, it's got some other uh, retail names, was banned and is banned in the European Union. So the scream was, why is it being used here? If it's a known neurotoxin and deemed poisonous in Europe, why was it permitted to be used here? In Florida. And that is what set me off and caused me to arrive here today to present to you No More Lies, Freedom Reserve, No More Lies, which, by the way, has a couple of different people looking at to get published. I published it myself, so regardless, it doesn't matter. And hosting Lieutenant Colonel Robert Buzz Patterson, who will be joining. Windward Radio here in a few moments. So who is Buzz? Why is he relevant? Because he's a faithful, honest servant to his country. And as every great military man or woman or personnel should be completely transparent, truthful, and honest. And he's got a story to tell about his time with the Clintons. He served in the United States Air Force, former military combat pilot, distinguished White House military aide, best-selling author, New York Times, two, two books, New York Times best-selling author, leadership consultant, popular public speaker, and former commercial airline pilot for Delta. Among Patterson's literary efforts include, again, New York Times bestsellers, Dereliction of Duty and Reckless Disregard. He's a native of Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Distinguished graduate from the Air Command and Staff College. He's got a bachelor's degree in political science from Virginia Tech and a master's in business administration from Webster State in St. Louis, Missouri. He and his family currently reside in California. From 1996 to 1998, Colonel Patterson was a military aide to President Bill Clinton. During that time, he served as 
at the right hand of Mr. President and Mrs. Clinton, and it was responsible for the president's emergency satchel, otherwise known as the nuclear football. The black bag with the nation's nuclear capability that accompanies the president at all times. Buzz was in charge of that. So through Buzz's veins ran the blood and the heartbeat to your protection if you lived in the U.S. Yeah, regardless of where you lived, really, that's a global issue. As such, Patterson had an office and a bedroom in the White House and accompanied the first family at all times. In addition, Colonel Patterson was operational commander for all military units assigned to the White House, which included Air Force One, Marine One, Camp David, and the White House Transportation Agency. Buzz Patterson frequently lectures at schools such as UC Berkeley, Gonzaga University, University of North Carolina, St. Louis University, Pepperdine University, UCSB, that would be Santa Barbara, the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library, and the Richard M. Nixon Presidential Library, and to the United States Congress. He has made appearances on the following television programs, Hannity, the Riley Factor, CBS Morning Show, Fox and Friends, Hardball with Chris Matthews, Dennis Miller's show, C-SPANS, Book Notes, and MSNBC News. He has also appeared on radio programs hosted by Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, Michael Savage, Lars Larson, Hugh Hewitt, and Discussion of Truth shortly with Ian Trottier. Dereliction of duty is a specific offense under United States Title 10, Section 892, Article 92, and applies to all branches of the U.S. military. That's a pretty big deal. We will be right back with Buzz Aldrin. Try to fight, can't run away Run away, run away Jasmine in my bathroom say I know you ain't leaving yet Every time it feels like it We gravitate, gravitate But I'm just trying to feel it out Touch you in reanimate this flame Cause this candle's lit Can't let these seconds go I'll tell you what the wise man said Don't make a fire if you can't handle it This is the part when the heart starts shifting This is the part when the love got missing This is the part This is the part This is your facade has subsided On mind and mind The lines divided Mesmerizing I watch them twist and turn Scars and little burns You twitch, I get excited I see between your eyes and mine As vivid as my life is Thighs of a little girl That don't know their price Yet your essence on my tongue, baby I slowly digest my body's lifeless and lit Without your touch, my lovely Isis My lovely Isis I race to this little boy They say don't know Christ yet Pulled down by the vices They hold them like a vice grip Yeah So save some blessings for my soul, baby 
Save some blessings for my soul, babe Don't let me go, babe Don't let me All right, little Phantom Lord Metallica, we have with us online former Lieutenant Colonel of the United States Air Force, right-hand man to Mr. Bill Clinton. He held the nuclear football for a couple of years, uh, putting, uh, basically protecting you and I as we didn't know it, Buzz Patterson. Buzz, can you hear me? Got you loud and clear again. How about me? I hear you loud and clear, sir. And you call us, uh, or rather we call you uh, from Miami. You are in California, is that correct? That is correct, yeah, just outside of Los Angeles. All right, and how the, how's the weather today? You know what? It's been brutally hot, Ian, but uh, today is actually pretty nice. We had a, a little cool off today, but we, we've been actually, L.A. is experiencing some hotter than normal temperatures. We actually hit 115 a couple of weeks ago, which is an all-time record. But today is actually very pleasant. Wait, what About, is 115 all-time record? Yeah, in Los Angeles. Yeah, we normally get the ocean breezes here. You know, I'm, I'm right off the coast here. Normally, you get the ocean breezes and the marine layer in the morning, and it burns off in the afternoon. But about two weeks ago, man, it was just brutal. It was uh, 115 one day, one night, 109 the next day. And yeah, and uh, today, actually, today it's 85. So today's uh, nice and balmy. That sounds that sounds a little more uh, conducive with, uh, with 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 the climate that I'm familiar with of Southern California. I lived in Palm Springs. One fifteen, I think, is uh, something you get out there in the Coachella Valley. But but like you say, not not toward the coastline. That uh, that's a little too much. Yeah, it's, you know, the desert, as you know, the desert gets pretty hot. You know, we're probably typically about twenty degrees cooler over here. Uh, but that uh, that heat wave that came through a couple of weeks ago was just was brutal, and uh, we all we all got it. I mean, all, all the way up the state, uh, went into the desert, up to the up to the Sierras, we're seeing 100 degrees. It was uh, it was nuts, but it's it's nice today. Okay, how long have you been in California? I moved out here from the East Coast in uh, in 2006. My family and I did. I was a uh, I wrote some books. I retired from the Air Force in 2001 after doing the uh, the thing with Bill Clinton in the White House. Started writing books, best selling books about what I'd seen in the White House. And we moved out here. So I lived in Atlanta from 2001 to 2006, and then we moved out here in 2006. Uh, I was flying for Delta Airlines for a while as a pilot. And kept writing books, and now I'm doing uh, speaking and writing and blogging and uh, and doing uh, media pretty much full time. I just I was so incensed with uh, Hillary Clinton running again. I couldn't stand to see that happen back in 2006. So I retired from Delta as an airline pilot and got back into doing this, and I'm which is nice. I get to be home a lot more and see my kids and my wife. Uh, I'm not traveling three weeks out of the month, um, and I'm happy to be. You know, one of these guys in, in California, where this is the heart of the beast. You know, if you're if you're a conservative Republican, you are in the heart of out here, especially in Los Angeles. So I'm happy to be out here fighting the fight. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm actually from uh, Northern California. I understand that you uh, was it Alameda Air Force Base. No, I was at Travis Air Force Base, kind of north north uh, east of uh, the Bay. And in fact, I married a girl from Chico. So my wife is from Chico, and we, I lived up in the Fairfield, Vacaville area, flew out of Travis. And uh, in fact, that's where I was, Ian, when the White House called. Funny story, I was a squadron commander in uh, California at Travis Air Force Base, and the White House called in the fall of 95 and said that I was one of six 
that they wanted to interview for the military aid of the president of the United States. I had no idea what that job meant or entailed. I had heard about the nuclear football, but I really wasn't um, you know, clued into that. I was a pilot. And uh, so I flew out to D.C. in the fall of 95, and Bill Clinton hired me. I started carrying the nuclear football and actually living and uh, in the White House. I, so I had a bedroom and an office in the White House from 90, 1996 to 1998. And saw a lot of crazy things. I mean, I was there during the Monica Lewinsky stuff, Paul Jones, uh, the impeachment. Um, that was every day was interesting. It was like, you know, it was kind of a, uh, you never knew what was going to happen from day to day. Um, so I was by his side. I used to jog with him. I used to go play golf with him and hang out with him um, when he wasn't being presidential and doing his presidential stuff. Uh, so I got to know him and, his, and the first lady pretty well. I, I saw a lot of things I didn't like about my experience there, so that's why I wrote Dereliction of Duty in 2003 when I retired. So, uh, Buzz, what, what was it that kind of set you apart uh, for the White House and whoever, whoever's making that decision to kind of put you, uh, put you as a candidate? Uh, what, what were you doing? Were you top of your class? What, what, was it, what, what was it about you? A little bit of everything. I think that uh, there were, like I said, you, it's not a job you can apply for. And I was, uh, the White House actually went to the Pentagon and said, give us six nominees. And they picked me as one of six because I was a combat pilot. I had been promoted ahead of my peers a few times. Um, I actually had no idea until um, I got to the White House. And I remember that the person that hired me was at the time chief of staff of the White House, Leon Panetta. And I remember interviewing with uh, Mr. Panetta, and he asked me why I wanted the job. And quite frankly, I was uh, dating my now wife uh, in Northern California and flying around the world having the time of my life. And I told him, I said, you know, sir, I'm not really sure that I do want the job. You guys, you guys called me to come out here. I'm happy to be here, uh, enjoying the experience. And so I thought when I walked out of the White House that day that, that I had pretty much, you know, um, uh, shot my, you know, it was not, there was no way I, they were going to hire me. And he called me in my uh, hotel room that night and said, we'd like to offer you the job to be the president's military aide. And I got to meet President Clinton the next morning and we were off and running. So to this day, Ian, I have no idea why they selected me other than the fact that I had a, you know, I had some combat experience uh, pretty quick on my feet in terms of uh, operational stuff. Because, you know, one of the things about the White House military aide is you're also in charge of all the military assets. So the Air Force One guys work for me. The Marine One guys work for me operationally. Um, all the, the White House Communications Agency, which people don't, don't realize exists, is about 3,000 military folks that do all the IT. They do all of the computers, the satellite phones, the um, everywhere the president goes, they go and set up their own their own cell phone networks. It's really kind of cosmic stuff. But so all the military people that work for the president actually worked through me operationally. And I think they, they liked the fact that I uh, had some experience as a commander in the Air Force. I had, had a lot of folks working for me at the time, I, you know, I, again, and I had just gotten back from combat in Bosnia. So I think that was probably the, 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 you know, for me, the tiebreaker with the other guys. I mean, they were, they were all, there was an F-16 Thunderbird pilot was there. I mean, it was just a uh, five other really, really cool, um, interesting people the Air Force had sent forward, but they ended up picking me and my life changed forever. Yeah, so, um, all right, all right, so, you, so you're in the White House, and what's your first impression of Mr. Clinton? Well, I remember very distinctly, Ian, the first day I walked into the White House was a spring day in 1996. I remember just thinking, here I am, an Air Force major. Um, you know, uh, it was kind of overwhelming, 
that you had, you're moving into the White House, basically. You have, like I said, you have an office and you have a bedroom in the White House. And I remember uh, walking down to the Oval Office and meeting Mr. Clinton. And this is, this is honest to God truth. I, I remember walking to the Oval Office and meeting him. And I just, re I stepped back and looked at him. He, number one, he's a, he's a pretty big man. It doesn't come across on TV that way, but he's a, he's, he's a very tall man. And he's got a huge head. And I remember looking at his head and going, dude, that is a big melon. You know, I'm meeting the president and that is a big guy. Uh, he, very nice. We got along great. You know, um, when he wasn't being presidential, he's one of those guys, Ian, I tell people that, you know, you want to have him over to your house for a barbecue because he'll tell some great stories and some colorful jokes. Uh, but you want to keep him away from your wife and your daughter. Uh, and that's the kind of guy President Clinton was. So my first impression was, um, you know, he's he's the president. I got to I got to watch what I do, make sure I don't get him hurt or embarrass him and just uh, be the military guy for him. And, and I was able to get through two years without screwing anything up. <laughs> it sounds good. Now, now Hillary Clinton's a, a, a whole whole other character. And from the you know, from yes. the perception from the perception buzz, it's kind of like, you know, you you can you can see that the two of them kind of cats and dogs they get into it you, and you're, you're it's you know certainly hillary wear literally wears pants uh but you know you're serving <laughs> you're serving her or them you're serving bill you're, you're there for bill not for her this is back in the mid 90s uh what, what was your impression of the relationship after two years of uh, being you know right next to uh, right next to the president you and know what like they they were night and day and it was uh again uh, being around bill was comfortable and uh for the most part, I mean, uh, there were there were times when it wasn't cool to be around him, and it was very uncomfortable. But for the most part, he was pretty warm and ingratiating, um, very gregarious. Now, Hillary, on the other other hand, was uh, you know she was kind of like the Gestapo in the White House. She was just really short and cold and curt. She she you know in her defense, she kind of kept the trains running on time. She made sure that Bill was where he was supposed to be, when he was supposed to be there. You know. And I, I likened it uh, to, I remember I used to tell folks when I was working there that when she wasn't around, the White House was like a frat party. But when she was around, it was a whole different atmosphere. You know, it was like even on Air Force One, we were in Air Force One flying around the world. If she was not there, he was, he was scarfing down, you know, cheeseburgers and uh, Mexican food and barbecue. And when she was on the airplane with us, traveling with um, the, 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 the president, it was always, you know, vegan food and salads. And uh, uh, so it was, uh, wow. it was night and day. You know, I mean, she really uh, was never the politician or the personality, as, as we've seen recently, that he was. Uh -huh. uh, and I, she was just incapable. He was a, he was a quintessential politician. For all of his problems and his warts, and I write about him in my books, he was a quintessential politician, and she never had any of that aptitude. Uh, she was not a very eloquent speaker, as, as we all know. He can be. Uh -huh. He can be riveting as a speaker, but she's, uh, she's nowhere near that. So what, uh, what do you think attracted the two of those personalities early on? What, what brought them together? What kept them together? You know, I think it was early on. It was kind of a political expediency thing. She needed uh, she needed some um, some you know street cred in terms of politics, and he was going to run for governor uh, of of Arkansas, and that and she ended up moving to Arkansas with him, and that kind of went down. And I think later, as as the years progressed, and he started having uh, you know his uh, his uh, bimbo eruptions and his scandals, it became more of a business relationship. And in fact, I was there the day Monica Lewinsky situation hit the national press. And I remember thinking very clearly that was when 
she basically they, they had kind of a uh, you know a, a powwow up in the residence of the White House, and I remember thinking this is where she's taking over, and she did. She became the co-president, and she told him what to say, when to say it, what not to say. When he came out and said, you know, I did not have sex with that woman, Monica, yeah. Miss, Mrs. Lubitsky, that was Hillary's words verbatim. Wow. So it became a, it became this. a yes, it you became a com- yeah. yes, it became a one hundred percent mutual. Uh, business relationship where she said, I'll stay with you if you stay with me. So he ended up having to, of course, support her, knowing that she was going to run for the Senate and then the presidency at some point. And that's why he still to this day, you know, he's, he's supporting her. But there, there's no intimacy there. Ian. There's uh-huh. none, none whatsoever. It's all it's all business. Do you do you feel that perhaps uh, the the relationship got to to a point where she realized that uh, she was able to she she certainly got the upper hand in that relationship and so she was going to ride the coattails of absolutely yeah absolutely that's exactly what happened and I remember at the time you know if when the monocle thing came down. Uh, Chelsea was the only person that didn't really know what was going on. I knew, I knew who Monica was. I knew what was happening two years prior to this. And I, and, and so did Hillary. Hillary did later wrote in a, in her book that she had no idea what was going on. That's complete BS because she knew from the very beginning what was happening. In fact, she was the one that actually had Monica transferred from the white house over to the Pentagon prior to the whole thing going South. And, um, I think she knew that when, uh, he got caught if, and when, he got caught. That was her chance to, you know, to ante up and to leverage herself, which is exactly what she did. So, Buzz, when when Monica, you were you were literally within two minutes of Bill for two years. So you you knew his life as well as his wife did, basically almost. So you weren't sleeping uh, in the same room, but you were close and you were with him all the time. What was going on with Monica Lewinsky? And did you think? Uh, before before it became uh, mainstream media, did you think that there was something off? Well, I knew I knew very early on. I, mean, I, I can't re- put my finger on it, but I think it was about two weeks into my time there, and I noticed that, of course, you know, your access in the White House is all dependent on your position. So I, my position was like Secret Service guys. I had I could I could access the Oval Office. I could access the residence. I could be around him without anybody being concerned. And I noticed this this young female intern that had the same access to the Oval Office that the rest of us had. And she wasn't even working in the White House. She was working in the old executive office building, which was across the street. So I asked the Secret Service guy, I said, hey, what's up with, with, um, with this? Who's, you know, who's this? Who's this girl and wh- what's going on? He goes, well, he says, man, don't go there. This is uh, that's presidential best friend type material. And you don't want to you don't want to uh, you don't want to ask any questions. Just let it go. And so like he kind of wink, wink, nod, nod, you know, that kind of thing. So I knew, very, I mean, like within two weeks, I knew what was going on. And I would see her around from time to time, again, in the Oval Office in the West Wing, which is not where she belonged. And, of course, then, then Hillary had her transferred to the Pentagon, uh, which didn't really stop her because when Hillary would go on trips, she'd come back over on weekends and be around him. And uh, I'd see her, her and him in the Oval and uh, – uh, when when Hillary was back at home, he had to be you know on his best behavior. But when Hillary was on uh, flying around the world doing her first lady stuff, uh, Monica was was around frequently. Interesting. So okay, let's let's get into um, let's get into Title Ten, Section Eight Ninety Two, Failure to Obey Order and of Regulation or Regulation. This is uh, this is a pretty stern um, title to your book, Dereliction of Duty. 
And um, and 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 are you saying that the former president, then president, uh, could be and should be tried for dereliction of duty? No, I, that's the UCMJ. That's the Uniform Code of Military Justice phrase. And as a military guy, I use all my books talk about are, are from the from the standpoint of what a military officer sees. And as what American citizens should expect from our commander in chief. So my, all my books are titled something that comes out of the UCMJ in terms of, uh, of, you know, uh, discipline. Um, my point in dereliction of duty was the fact that we had a commander in chief who, in my opinion, is an air force officer. I don't write about Monica Lewinsky at all in my books. Actually. I, I keep this very, very objective in terms of, you know, here's the commander in chief. Here's here's a, a young air force officer and a pilot who's working for the commander-in-chief. And these are the many ways that he let us down in terms of national security. Yeah. Uh, I talk about the times he had a chance to, we had a chance to capture or kill bin Laden. I talk about the time that President Clinton actually lost the nuclear codes. I talk about the time that, I mean, there's so many situations, Ian, where I was a part of watching him fail to wow. be a commander and take decisive action. Okay, so let's, let's let, wait, before heading into this, uh, and you met with Panetta and, and, and you accepted the job and you went in, what, let's go with the first couple months and what are, let's, let's contrast for a moment what you were expecting that, that, the, the, what you were expecting the president, what kind of life you expected him to be living versus what you actually experienced. How, how did that contrast? Oh, that's a good, that's a really good question. Uh, I would say that I, you know, as again, I was walking in the first day, um, extremely uh, overwhelmed with the responsibility. I mean, you're the nuclear football basically is the, the satchel, which allows the commander in chief, no matter where he is in the world to either initiate nuclear war or to respond to nuclear war. So I was very, I mean, to me, it was a very sobering from day one, very sobering, uh, obligation. Uh, so I walked in the White House, you know, just making sure I didn't, I didn't, I didn't mess up. I mean, I wanted to make sure that if yeah. it came down to the, the the balloon, you know, rising, that I would be able to to hop to and do the right thing. Yeah. But I also expected. I think that was the first disappointment I had. Ian was walking into the White House and just seeing how chaotic it was. Hmm. You know, coming out of an Air Force uh, squadron and an Air Force wing where everything was so buttoned up. Yeah. And disciplined, and everybody knows their rank and their their position in life and what their their responsibilities. And then walking out, walking into the White House and seeing just how freaking chaotic it was. It was really? like, oh my god, this is this is the most important building in the world. I'm working for the most important man in the world, and this is what we have. Was it like an animal so house? I, animal house? It, sometimes it was. I uh-huh. mean, it literally could be. I mean, it was just again. A lot of times it depended on whether Hillary Clinton was around or not. If she wasn't around, it was sometimes a free for all. Uh, especially on Air Force One. I mean, Air Force One would be a would be a huge party uh, if Hillary wasn't on board. Now, I couldn't partake, but everybody else did because um, yeah. I was in uniform with the football. But you know, I mean, I saw. I remember one, this is a funny story. I remember one time we were taking off in Air Force One at, at Andrews Air Force Base, and uh, President Clinton had uh, grabbed one of the food trays out of one of the galleys. He was surfing down the the corridor of the airplane on the takeoff. You know, which which violates every single FAA regulation there is in the book. But that's how that's how this guy was. So anyway, I mean, every day Ian was a different. Um, you know, some days were a lot of fun. Some days were really really dark. I mean, especially after the Monica thing happened, it was just a really dark place to work, and people were very depressed and unhappy. And and we knew going into the impending impeachment, it wasn't going to be a, wasn't going to be a happy place. 
Yeah. Okay. So now let's go back to the uh, nuclear football. This is hey, walk us walk us through uh, walk us through that experience that you had with the president. Uh, what that was like. Uh, you uh, take 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 us there. Um, kind of they call you know whatever, this this whole kind of scenario of causing you to write this book. What what, what was that? What did that look like? Okay, so the again, the military aid is up close and personal with the president twenty four seven, no matter where in the world. I mean, Marine One, Air Force One, uh, you're kind of uh, his uh, his sidekick in case uh, stuff goes goes south with uh, the military or nuclear threats. And again, I mean, I was in charge of uh, or operationally in charge of all the military assets, which is huge. Um, so uh, I, I arrived there again. I, I'll be honest with you. I was it was a, I was apolitical. Uh, they asked me during my uh, interview, my three-day interview process, if I had voted for President Clinton. I said no. I said, quite frankly, I didn't vote for anybody. Nice. I was just an Air Force pilot. I'm you know, here to serve, happy yeah. to serve, do my job. Uh, and I, as, I, as the days went on, uh, you know, the first six months were kind of a blur. Okay. But I started seeing things that were, you know, a little bit troubling. I write about this in their election where one time we had an opportunity, the president had an opportunity to uh, prevent Saddam Hussein's um, uh, Republican Guard from uh, from uh, you know massacring several thousand Kurds in the northern wow. part of Iraq, and we had we had our our uh, Air Force and uh, Navy um, fighter pilots and bombers in, in position uh, during the night to go ahead and, and prevent this attack from happening. And President Clinton chose uh, to do nothing, uh, just like he chose. Our, we had eight times to either capture or kill Bin Laden in my two years there, and he chose every single time to do nothing. And I thought, you know. Ian, if you're a commander in the military, yeah. uh, in the Air Force, you've got, you know, you you, you have scant little time uh, in the fog of war to make decisions. And, and by not making a decision, you're making a decision. And he chose every time to do the most uh, politically expedient thing, in, in my opinion. And that's why I call it dereliction of duty. If I had been a commander in the Air Force, uh, as I was, and had, had refused to respond to threats and say i flew in the bosnian war for example if i had refused to respond to threats in bosnia and not reacted with my men and airplanes i would have been i could have been held uh derelict of duty so that's where this this comes from right from the heart of a military guy trying to explain to the 99 percent of us in this country who don't have military connections you know what the military goes through on a daily basis and what we should uh, not only expect but demand from a commander-in-chief and uh, Buzz, have you had a chance to speak to Bill about the book that you've written about him? Uh, I have not spoken to him directly. This is a funny story, also, Ian. Uh, we used to get my wife and I used to get Christmas cards yeah. from the Clintons every Christmas, and the book came out, and those stopped coming. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm pretty sure that the yeah, I, I, I bet you, it, knowing him and knowing her today, if I saw him somewhere, he'd go, "Let's go have a beer." Yeah, yeah. Uh, knowing knowing her, she uh, slipped my throat. But this is like a major thing. So, uh, what happened? It was it was it the Lewinsky uh, the Lewinsky scandal came out, and then you're sitting with Bill in the Oval Office, and you're asking him if he has the uh, the, the 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 code or, or whatever it is. Right. Walk right. us through that. What did that look like? Yeah, so the uh, nuclear football is what the it's the, it's the satchel that has everything the commander in chief needs, uh, with the exception of a credit card sized document, uh, which is, which is actually the nuclear codes, which every president since Eisenhower is is, is carried, because that's how the president can then uh, authenticate himself or verify himself to the Pentagon in a very quick manner 
to make uh, nuclear attacks happen. And what is it? So, like, uh, is it a fingerprint? What is it? How it's do, how, yeah, go it's ahead. a credit card size document that you actually, the ex, it's a credit card size document that you actually break open. We used to we nickname it the biscuit because you actually break it open like a biscuit. Uh-huh. And the president then the president then through the military aid reads a sequence of uh, of symbols and numbers. It's like a it's like a very detailed password. Okay. Uh, for the internet. And this is so, like sorry, Buzz. And this is this is what this is to like literally launch a nuclear weapon. A launch or retaliate. So let's say let's say China or Russia. Uh, had, had launches a weapon on us and we have you know 10 15 minutes to respond uh we would have to let the the president would would, would respond he would have to reply to that or yeah. if we wanted to initiate an attack he would be the guy that initiated it so he would be talking to me i'd be talking to the pentagon the pentagon the national military command center uh would make sure that the codes that he has match the codes that they have so that they know, in fact, beyond a shadow of a doubt, it is, in fact, the commander-in-chief. So it's not some rogue person trying to launch nu- nuclear weapons. And the process works very, very well. Unfortunately, President Clinton lost those codes, and we were without that capability. I didn't know this at the time, Ian. We, we, I, in fact, I, I asked him, how long has it been since you've last seen him? I mean, we, we turned the White House upside down looking for these things. Again, it's, again, it's about the size of a credit card or a wallet's, uh, wallet-sized um, uh, document. And he said, I can't remember. I said, has it been days? He goes, I, I don't know. I said, weeks? He said, I, I don't know. I said, it's been months? He goes, I, I just can't tell you. So theoretically, I'm not sure. I'm not going to blame him for all three months, but we do this about quarterly. So there was, a, there was a potential, Ian, that we didn't have the ability to respond for two to three months, potentially. It could have been less than that, but the fact that he would had no idea how long it had been or when he'd last seen him, to me, was, was, was shocking and, and telling. And just one more of those, you know, one of those dominoes that fell where I thought, geez, you know, this guy, this guy's not equipped. He can't do this. And Robert, how long was it into your two years with uh, with the White House that you realized that the president was without these codes? Uh, When was this? This was the same day that Monica Lewinsky hit the national press. If you remember, there was rumblings of the Paula Jones testimony, and there was rumblings. I mean, Matt Drudge was carrying it, I think, a few days prior to that. And then finally, the morning of uh, – in fact, it was the morning in January. I believe it was January 21st of 1998, and I was the first person on his schedule that morning to, again, brief him on the process, ask him questions about the military, if he had any questions about the military, make sure that he actually had the nuclear weapons or the nuclear codes. And that's when he confessed. I mean, he had just found out that morning that he had hit national press. So I walk in the Oval Office. Yeah. And here he is. He's got his head in his hands. He's white as a ghost. You can tell he's been up all night long, yeah. you know, knowing this is going to happen. And so I walk in the morning. I was first guy on the schedule, seven o'clock in the morning, and I say, "Okay, sir, you know this is not a good time. I understand that because I I had seen the head, the headlines that morning, and I said I can come back later uh, for your for your quarterly briefing. I just you know just if you can just show me the nuclear codes, I'll be on my way." And he said, "Well, I don't have them. I'll get them back to you later. I'll show them to you later. Come back this afternoon." So I said, "Okay, sir, I'll do that." So I came back a few hours later, and he, that's when he confessed that he, had, in fact, uh, he had, did not know where they were. We we uh, we launched this massive, uh, you know, uh, search in the White House. Never did find him, and I had to call the Pentagon and say, "Hey, you know, uh, the president's lost the codes. We need to regenerate them." Which that that process did not exist at the time, so they had to jump through hoops to to somehow get all these codes out to all the submarines and missile silos wow. and uh, fighter 
squadrons around the world uh, with the new code so that they knew that this was in fact the president. So that was not a that was not a small undertaking. So that was in January of 1998. Now, Buzz, what was the protocol? This wasn't something that you would do with the president on a daily basis. I mean, this is this is like basically the height of uh, of national security here. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we would do it quarterly. Uh, I can't. It's kind of a classified thing, and how frequently we would do it. But okay. it was roughly every, roughly every three months we would do it. And you know, he uh, he would always have a few questions about the process. And about once a year, we would actually exercise. We would actually do a fake drill where we would have you know he would have a need to uh, or reason to actually you know initiate a a, a, um, a simulated uh, launching or exercise launching it you know we weren't going to obviously do it but we would go through all the processes all the communications with all the commanders around the world through the pentagon and he would be there and he would be talking to me and we would we would do this about once a year but i would ask him about the codes you know pretty, every i don't know it wasn't an everyday thing i would probably i would say probably every three to four months i would just inquire uh, he would he would schedule me i'd come in Normally, be about 15 minutes of his time because he was a very busy man, and I would go back to my office, and that would be that. So it really caught me off guard that the you know the the morning that I did come in there, and uh, I mean I was floored. I mean, yeah, it had never it had, it had never happened before, and has never happened again. So that's how important those those things are, and how you know I mean it, it, essentially I don't want to over dramatize yeah. this, Ian, but it, it it really is probably the most important military document in the history of mankind, if you think about it. <laughs> yeah. you know, it's it's the it's the it's the key to the arsenal. So uh, it's not something you take lightly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, this is very surprising. Is this is this how um, is this currently uh, what like uh, for instance Donald Trump does does he have the same or it's very similar nuclear football? Yes, yes. Uh, it, he probably has the exact same process. Uh, the nuclear football uh, is, uh, you know, I have not talked to the current military aides. I'm yeah. a little bit out of that loop now, but I know there's still five of them, uh, one from each service. There's always a senior one, which was I was the senior guy for my uh, 18 months okay. or two years there. Uh, so it's the same process, same, um, same football, uh, same, same contents. There's a lot more in the football that I can go into. Um, so the obvious thing is the nuclear, the nuclear aspect, but there's a lot more in there that the president has to have to be the commander in chief, no matter where he is. And I guarantee you today, I'm hundred percent sure that, uh, the guys and girls with Donald Trump have the exact same, uh, contents that I had. And did, did, did the Pentagon change anything up after the, what I'll say snafu with Bill? Uh, I mean, did, is there any protocol change? Maybe it's classified, but did they change anything that was anything learned from, uh, no. from that? Yeah, that's a good question. Not my time there. I mean, I can't. Again, I was. I left uh, about a year after that. Um, not in my time. In fact, we just we kind of kept. In fact, one of the things that Bill Clinton told me, asked me, he said, you know, uh, his his mo his overarching concern was that that story not get out to the press. And uh -huh. he asked me to promise him I would never tell that story while he was president. And I I honored that promise and never told that story until he was out and I was out. So that's why I included it in dereliction duty because I think it's an important story. I think it's important that we understand, you know, how close we were to a potential catastrophe. Uh, but you know, I, I'm I'm just guessing. I'm speculating here, Ian. But I don't think anything's probably changed. There might be a little tighter control on the president and um, you know those codes because I mean I, I know for personally when I was there, President Clinton kept them uh, rubber banded. He didn't he didn't carry a wallet. He didn't like wallets, so he kept his the codes rubber banded to his credit cards in his pant pocket. 
And so he would put them on his uh, bedside table at night, and just leave them there when he would sleep. And so he has um, he has valets that uh, work in the in the residence upstairs, and they would make sure that he had those when he was walking out. I don't I don't know how the ball got dropped over those two or three months, but it did. <laughs> it's just uh, just astonishing. So it's cost it costs you a yearly Christmas card, but it's uh, but, it, but <laughs> yeah yeah it's yeah it's it's uh, again I I guarantee you if I saw him today in a bar he'd be he'd be all hugs and grins and stuff. Um, but I don't think she'd be anywhere near that <laughs> near that uh, polite. And then we're looking at something called a uh, the broomstick one. That that, that kind of uh, yeah. That's, go ahead. That's a, <laughs> that's what people. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So I uh, when I I left the White House and I went to fly uh, commercially for Delta Airlines and I started writing books, as you know. And I for my third books by my third book called War Crimes, I embedded myself in Iraq uh, and was with. Uh, as a, as a journalist, and I was with the Army and Navy guys and uh, Marines and hanging out to different bases in Iraq. And so Hillary Clinton uh, just decides that she's running for the Senate. She decides, or she's a senator, actually. So she decides to pay a surprise visit to uh, the, the base I was at, the military base in Iraq. And uh, I remember uh, going into the dining hall and hearing all these troops talking about, oh, my God, here comes Broomstick One. Uh, <laughs> so that, that was the airplane that Hillary was on. They, they nicknamed it Broomstick One. And the funny thing too, Ian, was that nobody they were they were had they had to force people to actually have lunch with her. She wow, uh, they were nobody wanted to eat with her or sit around her, and they had to actually the commanders had to order people to be uh, to sit with her and be you know cordial and um, and she of course went right to the front of the line and ordered her food in front of about two hundred people, uh, which didn't surprise me either. But that's yeah, broomstick one was Hillary's airplane. Uh, Buzz, in your opinion, uh, who was who was Bill's closest confidant while 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 you were there with him? Who 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 did you feel that he trusted the most? There were two guys, and I hope I mean I hope you remember their names because they were pretty prominent at the time. Vernon Jordan, who was an attorney in Washington D.C., a really close friend of his and, uh, and and golfing partner, he was an attorney in D.C. and and Vernon was the guy that ended up uh, getting Monica out of Dodge and getting her a job in New York City. And the other guy was a guy named Bruce Lindsay. He was uh, he goes he was president he was Governor Clinton's uh, counsel, uh, legal counsel in Little Rock during the Little Rock days, and he uh, got brought to the White House with uh, Clinton. And so Bruce Lindsay was around all the time. He was kind of the keeper of the closet skeletons. Uh, so those two guys were the two guys I think that that Bill lived on or leaned on the most. Uh, of course, then he had all of his, um, you know, his Clintonista. He had Lanny Davis, and he had Paul Begala, and he had Rahm Emanuel. He, I mean, he had you know his his little hit team of guys that's still out there moving and shaking. Uh, I mean, Michael Cohen's attorney now is Lanny Davis. So that that tells you what's going on there. Now, what about um, what about did you your perception? Did you ever feel like Bill was making decisions? Um, specifically to uh, to sympathize or make one particular group um, uh, feel you know feel good or rather rather what were there was there was there any a time was there ever any a time um, you know just looking at the state of uh, where we are politically in 2018 was there ever any a t- any time. Uh, Robert, in with your time with Bill, that you felt like there may be some strings being pulled uh, above him. Oh yeah, I think the, the the special interests back in those days. I mean, one of the I think one of the beauties about Donald Trump, whether you like him or not, 
is the fact that he's not beholden to anybody. He he basically funded his entire campaign for the most part. Clinton had to sell his soul to so many different groups um, mm-hmm. to be elected than to be reelected. And I, you know, one of the things I was when I was there, I was his call screener uh, in the e- you know, the evening hours because the rest of the staff would go home. So I would get phone calls, people like Jesse Jackson or you know Roger Clinton or whoever, and I would, I would put those calls through to President Clinton if he wanted to. If he wanted to take those phone calls, and I, I was amazed to me, amazing to me, how many special interest groups just rang him up constantly for favors. Uh, they, you know, he, they they had supported him and and put money into his coffers, and that was his time to pay them back. And it was, you know, he, in my estimation, he really didn't have complete control in the White House. He was he had really sold out in a lot of ways, and. And they people wanted their their chips repaid, and that uh, that was pretty constant. You know, you know, it was educational for me. Um, as a, you know, as a, guy, a military guy, I was I didn't have any political experience, but it was amazing to me just how you know uh, deeply invested uh, unions are, um, organiza- non nonprofits are. Uh, you know, the, the Black Congress, Congressional Congress is you know the NEA, National Education Association, so. People like that, the, the politicians, they, they get to that 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 uh, that position, uh, for the most part, are really beholden to a lot of people, and it's uh, it's kind of a sad commentary on our political system. Was there any particular group that caught your attention as, uh, oh wow, why, how is it, you know, something that that, that caught your attention? And then uh, the other uh, part of that question is, was there any group internationally that surprised you that he felt beholden to? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, I, one of the things that was missed during the Monica Lewinsky situation, in my mind, I think the Republicans went down the wrong path with that, because at the same time, I mean, President Clinton was using the State Department to send uh, missile technology and targeting technology to China in, re- in, in return for campaign funding donations. And I think that was the real crime at the time. You talk about collusion today with Russia. Yeah. The fact that China, the fact that China basically underwrote his presidency. Uh, you know, back going back to 1996. To wow. me, is that yeah, that story is still yet to be told. But I was just alarmed at how much you know international involvement and money that they had coming in, which would violate every single American campaign uh, law that we that we currently have on the books. But it went under the radar. And so, yeah, back back in '96, so the election campaign, you know, he was giving he was giving technology through Laurel to China, which now China has the ability to target uh, intercontinental missiles on American shores, thanks to Laurel Corporation and thanks to Clinton, the Clinton administration. So that, to me, was the in my time there, that was the biggest crime that I saw that went unreported. That's interesting you say that. One, one of the uh, I started this program. Uh, it's going on two years now. And one one of the early names that kind of caught my attention is a former Stanford Hoover fellow that started talking about uh, the the parts of the machine that were involved in uh, World War Two and, and and who was funding who and and whatnot. He's actually a British uh, a British born uh, a scholar. Uh, his name's Anthony Sutton. Are you familiar with that name? I've heard the name. I don't know much about him, but I've, I actually have heard that name. So what's interesting is that from Anthony Sutton, I was led uh, to a guy named Carol Quigley. Uh, are you familiar with that name? I am not. So Carol Quigley, from my understanding, uh, was uh, one was the not one of but the uh, main mentor 
for uh, Mr. Clinton while at Georgetown. Um, and so, you know, the one, some, one of the reasons I'm asking uh, uh, these, these questions in regards to who he may have felt beholden to, in, uh, specifically internationally, is because Sutton gets into a lot of that. Um, and, and, of course, he traces, he traces back through Bush and, and then the Rockefeller family and, and things of that nature. But right. there's, you know, there's, there's different, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's all, it, we're, all, we're all part of the human species. So we're all tied to each other one, one way or the other. But I mean, certainly some of us are tied closer to, to others than, 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 than others are. So Qua- Carol Quigley influenced, uh, influenced Bill. And then there's also the, 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 the fact that it's kind of uh, goes back to the reason I was asking this question is because uh, Bill, Bill had sten- uh, spent time at Oxford. So right. um, uh, wondering if, you know, there was, there was ever, in your, in your kind of uh, you know, small talk with, with the president, uh, did he ever talk about any any of his relationships at Oxford or uh, any of the people he knew in England? No, he didn't. We would talk about, uh, for the most part, when he, he and I were just uh, kind of bantering while we jogged or on yeah. the golf course. He would talk about, he would ask me a lot of military questions. You know, what did I think about um, this capability, what's going on in Bosnia? I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't his primary military advisor by any stretch because he had the joint chiefs, uh, yeah. but I was the guy around him most of the time that could answer a lot of those questions. So he would talk about that. I mean, Hillary was probably one of the more, she would expound on her, her past, Wellesley, you know, um, her influences more than he did. I think Bill was more all about, um, you know, his, uh, his, his presidency, his, uh, his legacy, you know, the past for him, I think was uh, not as important, uh, but I think Hillary was much more, in tune and much more threaded to how she had been raised, you know, over the years in terms of Wellesley and then being part of the Watergate investigation and, uh, you know, her, her anti-war efforts and yeah. those kind of things. So she was more philosophical. He was more pragmatic in, in my experience. Let me, let me throw another name out there here, here for you, Buzz, um, because you would travel with the Clintons and you're right next to him. How about Jeffrey Epstein? Uh, did that name ever cross uh, dialogue? Yeah. Yes, it did. What What was the relationship with um, with Clinton and Epstein? Uh, they were fairly close. I mean, one of the things that uh, that you know I, that I was I mean I was not uh, intimately involved with, but I was because I lived in the White House with him. I would yeah. see the comings and goings of a lot of people. I mean, a lot of Hollywood types um, would come through. Uh, you know, um, Harvey Weinstein. Weinstein was there frequently. Epstein was there. Um, so I would I mean I would happen to notice because I would see the presidential daily schedule every single day. Yeah. I had it on my phone and I had it on my, you know, there was a um a I'm not sure they they still have it, but there was like a uh, back in those days before computers were, you know, all that advanced, we had yeah. like uh TV screens in the corner of each office that would tell you, you know, where it was uh, who was coming, what the schedule was for that day and you would see, it would it would give you kind of a blow by blow and yeah. who was who was going to be there and he would and Epstein would be there frequently. Uh, I can't. I, I'm, off the top of my head, I can't remember exactly how many times I saw his name up there. Yeah. I did it, at the time. It didn't really. It didn't really play with me. It does now, but uh, I do right. recall seeing it. You know, it, probably more than two or three occasions. But I can't be. Um, I guess yeah, twenty years ago, I can't go. I just really can't recollect yeah, sure. that far. Did you ever? You, you never met him. Did you ever meet? I don't think so. I, I mean, I yeah. was involved in some of those things. I mean, they used to have movie nights downstairs. There was a bit of movie theater in the White House, and the president would do. Uh, he would get like first run films before they hit the theaters. And so I will go downstairs sometimes and just poke in there and see what's going on and who was there. Um, yeah. but, and he, I might've run across him then. I can't, I mean, I, I, I met Tom Hanks and, um, cool. You know, he's from uh, the Bay area. 
Gwyneth Paltrow and, um, you know, um, a lot of people like that. I mean, I, but I can't remember meeting Epstein in, in, by name. I probably, I probably did. Right. But I, I, mean, I would just shake their hand and get out of there. I mean, that, was, that wasn't my job to be you know, part of the moving and shaking crowd. I was just there to, you know, be entertained for a while. So, because yeah. um, my, my, you know, if, if nothing was going on, if we weren't traveling, quite yeah. frankly, I was up in my, in my office or down in my bedroom, you know, so I was just kind of hanging out. Let me ask you another question. Herbert Raymond McMaster, he came out with a book. I think it was about five, six years before uh, you came out with your book, but he, he named, the, the books have the same title, Dereliction of Duty. Are you familiar with that, that, with that book? Yes, H.R. McMaster, you bet. And what, uh, what do you think about uh, his stance on you know, uh, uh, going after Lyndon B. Johnson and, and uh, McNamara? Was it McNamara at the time? Uh, yeah, it was. It was, it was uh, Robert Strange McNamara. Yeah, I think it's a good book. Uh, I, you know, I've never met HR myself. I have, I've, I've, I've got friends that have worked for him in the army uh, specifically directly. Yeah. You know, I, I, um, I admire the guy. I remember that when my book came out after the fact, uh, you can't, you can't copyright book titles. That's one of the things okay. that, uh, you can't copyright song titles. You can't copyright book titles. So I remember when my publisher recommended that, that name, I said, well, there's already one out there. He goes, yeah, but that doesn't matter. Yours, yours is going to be much bigger anyway. And, uh, don't worry about it. So and I remember that. Yeah, it was. Yeah. 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 So I remember that uh, at one point in time, McMaster's attorney called uh, the publishing attorney and kind of, uh, you know, uh, had a little beef. And the, our, my attorney, my publishing attorney, I, don't, I didn't have one at the time, but the, the publisher said, well, you know, you can't copyright that. You should know that you're an attorney. And if anything, if anything happens, you're probably going to get a bump in the sales from Buzz's book. So I wouldn't complain. So, which is exactly what happened. So, people were going on to Amazon and, and mistaking the two books and buying his book instead of mine. Yeah, uh, I think he's a. I, you know, like I said, I think he's a brilliant um, warfighter, and I've got friends that work for him directly and, and love the guy. You know, he didn't fare too well working in the Trump administration as the NSC guy, uh, but you know, right. no ill wishes. <laughs> you know, I, I think I think his book's good. It's totally different than what I that I, what I write about. Um, same title, but again, you know, I. I I just think that uh, it's unfortunate that we both wrote books about different things with the same title, but that wasn't my call. That's my publisher. That, <laughs> that that's that's interesting. Yeah, but that yeah, that, that's very interesting. So, Buzz, tell us about your uh, your next project. Uh, where your where your career is headed from here? Tell listeners about what you're doing now. Oh my God! I mean, you know, I'm not sure what I'm going to do when I grow up, Ian. I, I am still <laughs> I'm still out there working. Uh, I've got a website, uh, buzzpatterson.live. I do a lot of speaking. I do a lot of speaking around the country, um, uh, primarily to conservative groups, uh, some corporations, and a lot of universities. Believe it or not, I get on a lot of univers- uh, a lot of campuses to talk about uh, you know the conservative approach from the military perspective. Yep. Uh, I've got that going on. So I've also got um, uh, a TV gig that I'm working on right now. Uh, it's an internet thing right now, but it's supposed to go cable satellite. I can't talk about that just yet, but okay. soon. Okay. Uh, we, I do a, I do a military show called Power and Patriots, uh, which is on Your Voice America uh, network, cool. and it's going to be one of the, one of those that might be going to the cable. And uh, that's a great. It's a real military show by the military for the military. It's, I've got a great group of co-hosts, and we talk about uh, today current current news. Um, Current international relations, national security affairs, uh, military affairs, from three former military officers, Army, Navy, and Air Force. So we we go after it. We don't hold hold anything back. We 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 tackle them, uh, PC or not. We tackle the Pentagon. We Good. go after the Pentagon and a lot of, a lot of things. And so I've got that going on. I'm working on my fifth book right now. 
Uh, it's a great story. I can't talk about that yet, but I'm about halfway through that. So it's a lot happening, man. I retired from Delta in 2016, and I've gotten <laughs> back to uh, I've gotten back to primarily speaking. I guess right now my, my biggest thing is, is traveling around the country, speaking to organizations, corporations, and uh, Republican groups. That keeps me busy, and I've got three three young kids and a wife at home, so I've got to take care of those. That sounds awesome, man. It sounds like you're 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 in the midst of your best career yet. I think so. You know, I'm I'm older, a little bit older, but not too old. So my uh, my wife and kids keep me young, and uh, so I'm not flying three weeks out of every month with Delta Airlines. I get to do a lot more of the stuff I enjoy, which is doing stuff like this with you. So I really appreciate the opportunity. Buzz, thanks for coming on the Winwood Radio and joining Discussing Your Truth and bringing, bringing us some solid cuts from the buzzsaw. And, and, <laughs> and, and Robert, thank you for your service. Well, thank you very much, Ian. It was my privilege. I wouldn't change a single day. I, I really enjoyed it. I, think I'm, I hope I'm still serving out there uh, for the nation and trying to make sure that we go forward in a positive direction. All right, man. Until next time, thank you. Take care. See ya. Ladies and gentlemen. Retired Lieutenant Colonel Robert Buzz Patterson. I mean, dude, that's uh, that's about as close as you can get to a former president that exists. You can't get much closer. Why? Because not only was he basically the right-hand man of Mr. Clinton for President Clinton for two years, but he was the link between Clinton and the Pentagon in as much as knowing the whereabouts of the nuclear football. Buzz Patterson, you have joined Winwood Radio. I am Ian Hamilton Trottier. This is your Wednesday edition, as always, of Discussions of Truth. Thanks for tuning in. And I'll be right back for some closing remarks.
I love Metallica. Yeah, speaking of the Bay Area, if you caught that, Buzz put in Tom Hanks in there, Gwyneth Paltrow, and I kind of slipped it in there, but you know, Tom Hanks was born in Pleasant Hill, to best of my knowledge. He actually went to a high school in Oakland called Skyline High School. My well, a member of my family actually happened to uh, also go to that school. Um, and uh, Travis Air Force Base is a an Air Force Base that I am very familiar with. Uh, if you know my uh, my roots, they do root back to uh, to to the Bay Area. Uh, Robert Patterson's roots actually started in North Carolina, and uh, he didn't go into a story here today. But uh, but there is an interesting story about the misuse of taxpayer money that uh, Hillary Clinton uh, made. Basically, uh, Buzz scramble a jet back. Uh, I'm not sure where it was, uh, Andrews Air Force Base, but they had just left Hilton Head, South Carolina. Uh, headed down to, I think it was St. Thomas, and they, they scrambled a, uh, a a jet just to pick up, uh, just to make sure that uh, um, that uh, the daughter, Clinton's daughter, Chelsea, uh, uh, her books would, would arrive in, in St. Thomas because uh, she had forgotten them. That, that would be Chelsea. Um, and yeah, interesting enough, I actually I, I saw, I lived, in, I lived in Mountain View, California for uh, right next to Moffitt, Moffitt uh, Air Force Base. Uh, former Air Force Base, uh, Moffett Field, they call it. Uh, I lived there for a couple of years, and uh, and I saw uh, uh, the Clinton motorcade um, at least once uh, as they, as I had uh, gone into uh, Mountain View to drive up to uh, Palo Alto to visit uh, Chelsea or take Chelsea back to school at Stanford. Uh, quite possible that uh, that 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 uh, Lieutenant Colonel was uh, actually in that motorcade. So this is a number of years ago. This is uh, easily twenty years ago. Well, eh, just about twenty years ago. Anyway. Another incredible show. I, I can't tell you enough how much I love doing this for you and for me and for America and for this country and for this world. Because what we do here is a classic example, excuse me, a classic example of an expression of freedom of speech, freedom of press. This is it. This is it right here, folks. Right here, this is free press, unfiltered, unedited, raw, and uncut. This, right here. And this whole segment will get posted to iTunes, to Google Play. We'll get thread back into the internet for folks, everyday folks to listen to. We've been very fortunate on this show, which originated as the Florida Sun and Spray show. Again, I started this because I started looking into the Zika virus. I love my country. No, I never joined the military. I've thought about it very close a number of times. Very close to becoming a Marine at one point. Very close to becoming, uh, actually joining the Air Force. And very close, probably closest to joining the Coast Guard. Uh, it doesn't matter what branch. Uh, what, what branch of defense. I, I, I love this country, and uh, I, I want to make sure that this country remains a beacon of hope and a standard of liberty and freedom for generations to come. But as you know, since you're most likely listening to me, you know that that is, that is in great jeopardy. So it's up to you, and it's up to me, to continue to dig. And fortunately, we've got people like Robert Patterson 
digging as well. But look, Cynthia McKinney, six-term congresswoman, John Perkins, former economic hitman, Stephen Kinzer, former New York Times correspondent, these are the folks that have graced the airwaves here at Winwood Radio on this program. Currently known as Discussion of Truth. It's been that way for a number of months. We dropped the Florida Sun and Spray show uh, probably a year ago. Next week, as I mentioned, Alana Freeland. She digs deep into what's called geoengineering. The documents prove it. It's, it's shown. It's happening. This is happening. So what is happening? That's what we ask. And Elena believes she's got a pretty good idea. So what she does is she portrays her research into her book called Under an Eye and Eye Sky, and she threads HARP and SDI, Strategic Defense Initiative, into geoengineering. Is there a thread between those three entities and, and, and elements? Is there a thread? Don't forget, JFK, John F. Kennedy, put her in the spotlight. She, she literally reminded the former president of his wife, as a younger version of his wife, back in 1963. So she'll be joining us next week. Got a lot of, lot, lot of new guests coming on board, and the show continues to grow. And support it. You're already supporting it by listening. Uh, donate to it. Donate in any way you like. Five cents, five dollars, fifty bucks, whatever you want. Five hundred bucks. Okay. Got a lot of things we're working on. Urge you to look into my book, Freedom Reserved, No More Lies. And until next week. Again, my name is Ian Hamilton Trottier. You can follow me on Twitter. Handle I-A-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R. Follow me on Instagram. Same handle. Go out and buy Buzz's book. Drop him a line. We're all in this together. I thank you for tuning in. I will talk to you in seven days' time. Let's hit the lights and... Beyond awesome.